Grand Rounds. Summer has come. We're running on a little bit on summertime behind the 8 o'clock hour, but people are showing up. This is the last Grand Rounds of the academic year. Uh, Quiz Bowl was a high point, but we have another high point today, and we'll reconvene in the fall. So um, before we uh, depart for the summer, and, and people are on their holidays, um, a couple of a couple of recognitions we recognized, and I was able to be there, and we recognized Dean Jarvis, as we already mentioned, and Jim Sargent for 25-year service awards last uh, this this Monday evening at Leveroni at the at the service club dinner. Today, you may see an invitation in your email box. Some of you for a celebration on Friday morning for uh, for service club at 25. <laughs> years and above on the pediatric ward for Louise Dauphiné and uh, Chris Leroy. So um, look out for that invitation for Friday morning. And we actually have a couple other folks. Steve Weinling's in the room at 20 years, although he denies it, and a couple other people. But I have another. I have a, I get the opportunity to present a pin today to someone who's actually been at Dartmouth for 15 years, although he's joined us in pediatrics relatively recently. And, and I won't embarrass you, Sharon, but Sharon, here's your 15-year pen from Dartmouth College. Thank you. you can leave. <laughs> but lots of good service. So um, with that, um, I get to reintroduce Dr. Hoffley, who's been continuing our uh, CHAD Pediatric Gastroenterology Mini Fellowship Series. Uh, we had uh, food aversions and food reactions last month, and Dr. Hoffley continues to be uh, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Chief of Pediatric Gastroenterology, and I love those letters, the Fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Canada. And Pam's going to talk about abdominal pain. <coughs> Oh, they usually turn the lights on. Turn the lights back on. Really? Then I can't see everybody, and I want people to interrupt me and stick their hands up. Ask questions. Where? Doesn't work. Oh, my lights. My eyes will adjust. Might as well adjust, but let's make this interactive and not me talking at you. Stick your hand up. Actually, Steve, if you, uh, sorry, Keith, show me how this works because I can't see anybody. Crazy. There we go. Okay, now I can see everybody. <laughs> Put us on the spot. What? Put us on the spot. Well, getting questions and seeing when people don't understand is important. <laughs> so we're going to talk about stomach aches today, which is. Um, a big part of the pediatric GI practice, and I would uh, venture to guess a big part of any general pediatric practice or pretty much any practice at all. Um, give this talk to the school nurses who live with this. Um, so it's an important part of what we do. Um, so just to review, at its simplest, I talk to kids that their digestive system is a tube running from one end to the other. Um, and anything we do at any part of it affects parts upstream and downstream. It's really sort of like an assembly line process or a disassembly line, and thinking about that sometimes helps. And I, we show this picture of the stomach and many, 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 many feet of small bowel with things to go to happen there. 
and then many, many feet of large bowel all packed into a small space. Um, this does not look like this other slides I sent. <laughs> yeah, this is not my slide set. <laughs> so this is a problem. This is my talk for residents about how the GI tract works, which none of you want to hear. <laughs> there we go. Well, there's second part. Here we go. They tagged it on the end. So all of you, I assume, have gone through the whole part that I went through before. This is part of it. So we'll see how we do with this. I can fake it and we can answer questions. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about recurrent abdominal pain. Let me flip through and see if they've got the right. Yeah, not really. But anyway, this is not my up-to-date slide set, but we'll work along on it. Um, so my tummy still hurts, and we'll talk a little bit about recurrent abdominal pain. Um, and so this isn't the stomach ache that I've had for a week or the stomach. Yes. Oh, apparently they might have them. I don't know where these ones came from and how they even found them. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should have checked you. Okay. We'll just go with this one and they don't have my set. We're working on it. I have it on my email. I have it on, I have it on, I have it on my computer. I can email this one. No, 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 it's on my desktop and I can email it to you. We're going to be flexible and everybody's going to ask lots of questions because there's lots of slides missing. What? We'll make it interactive. So recurrent abdominal pain is the most common complaint um, that we see in children 5 to 15 years of age. And most often, about 90% of the time, uh, no organic cause is found. And so we label it recurrent abdominal pain or uh, psychophysiologic pain. Um, we're trying to get away from that nomenclature a little bit, and the other set of slides goes through why we do that. Um, but needless to say, um, chronic we try to just call this chronic abdominal pain. It's very, very common. Um, and it's one of the major reasons that kids seek um, health care, either um, at their primary care, or it's one of the major things that we see um, in the GI office. Um, one of the important parts right up front is to, to figure out if, the, if there's any red flags, if there's something going on here that I, I need to, to pay attention to, or whether or not this is going to fall into that non-organic sex area. So a location of the pain other than periumbilical. So the classic, and I saw this in five new patients I saw yesterday out at the seacoast, where is your pain? Here. Okay, so we're not so worried now. Okay? If they say right there or right there, I'm a little bit more worried. And that was the case on Sunday night, was right there, and it was a perf duodenal ulcer and a 17-year-old taking naproxen. So those matter. That was the nighttime pain. So not the 
it only hurts when I lie down to go to bed and I don't want to go to bed and then I can go to sleep. Um, the nighttime pain of I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning from a dead sleep in a lot of pain. That sort of nighttime pain. Symptoms like protracted vomiting. Not I throw up on the way to school on Monday morning, um, but you know I start vomiting on Saturday and I can't stop vomiting for several hours. Significant diarrhea. Again, not what happens when I have to get on a plane, but what significant diarrhea is the stuff that gets you up at night that lasts for several days that isn't associated with midterms. Um, weight loss, unintentional weight loss. Kids who say, I really want to gain weight. I'm trying to gain weight. I eat a lot of food. Um, I don't understand why I'm losing weight. Not the child who says, I really, it gets mad at you when you talk about their weight loss because they want a thigh gap, okay? So um, features suggesting that this pain is more what we would call psychophysiologic pain is the classic vague variable imprecisely described. Where's the pain? All over. When's it happened? I don't know. Um, when was the last time you had it? It's all the time. Do you have it now? No. Um, <laughs> where is it? I don't know. How long does it last? I don't know. A few minutes, a second, three minutes. Um, they, and, you know, what's it feel like? Bad. Um, this, is, this is what we get. Other somatic complaints. It always comes with a headache in my legs and my arms and my knees hurt. Um, and sometimes I have a rash. And they look perfectly healthy. So this isn't the skinny, pale child that makes you panic when you see them in the office, but they look good or, in fact, they're overweight. Um, and there's often, and they have to spend time, and in the other slide set, spend quite a bit of time looking at the home or school stress, really getting to the solving the vaguely variable imprecisely described by saying, I really can only help you if you can help me. Um, so I need you to keep a diary of this. And I need to know what's going on in your life, what you're eating when you're going to the bathroom, what your activities are, to try and see how this pain reacts to things. <laughs> and then delving in a little bit to what's going on at home, what's going on at school. Pain is on the weekends when I'm with my dad. All that sort of thing is probably a really major part of this. And there are people who suggested, and including, I don't know if she's here, Sue Schmiga, last week, that most gastroenterologists should probably do a year of a psychiatric fellowship. Because um, <laughs> that's exactly what we need to get good at doing um, to solve this sort of thing. Um, so the differential diagnosis of recurrent abdominal pain, and I put diet up there in capital letters, especially now constipation, and we'll talk about this. And then the more pathologic things like infectious enteritis, peptic ulcer disease, lactose intolerance, IBD, celiac disease, and GERD. Those are kind of the biggies that we need to think about in the back of our mind when we're taking the history. Um, common complaints were poor diet is a major factor, chronic abdominal pain, any kind of diarrhea, constipation, IBS, headaches, and poor school performance often are diet related. So a typical team day when I do the history, oh, what did you have for breakfast? I don't have time. What did you have for lunch? Some pizza, some soda, bagels. Bagels are big, bagels and soda. Um, what did I have for dinner? Whatever fast food we drove past on the way home from whatever we were doing. Um, and so this is very, very typical. And, and it's amazing to me, and I think it's getting worse, that the, how little insight people have into this sort of diet 
be, have anything to do with the reason they're there in the office today. People fill out diet sheets for us that are full of Pizza Hut, Kentucky Fried Chicken, every sort of munchkins. I mean, I had a, a woman last week whose kid threw up on the way to the, the office after eating three munchkins and an iced coffee for breakfast. Six. Um, so there's, they, they don't, and when you look at the diet and you try to talk about it, we, we've had people seem, uh, uh, try to be nice about it, almost offended that you're saying that do, you know, if you eat at McDonald's, you are going to have a stomach ache. They're like, but why? My friends don't. If I eat at McDonald's, I get a stomach ache. But there's no recognition that eating at McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken could contribute to not feeling well. Um, and they really want to No, there must be something wrong with me. I shouldn't get a stomach ache just because I eat at McDonald's. Um, and so we have a big uphill climb here um, as far as this goes. I had um, a family who got very mad at me. Um, we'd done pretty well with their daughter's constipation and they went to vacation on Cape Cod and they came back and, and I said, how are things going? Well, I had ruined their vacation because I had not cured her because when she ate a tub of Haagen-Dazs and ate some onion rings, she got sick. Um, and, and there's just no wrapping people's heads around um, that what they eat could affect how they feel. And so that's why I go back to those slides that you saw at the beginning and I do talk to kids and I draw the pictures and about food in one end out the other and it all has to get digested in these loops and it doesn't like McDonald's. Um, we, I do try that. Um, here's another fast fact. Um, soft drinks supply 20 to 24% of calories of two to 19 year olds. That's including energy drinks too. What? Just energy drinks too, or just soft yeah. Drinks? That's the energy drinks, soft drinks, drinks with high fructose corn syrup. Uh, many years ago, they were all carbonated. Now we've switched out to non-carbonated soda. <laughs> that's really all that the juice and all these energy drinks are: is non-carbonated soda with the same amount of high fructose corn syrup in them. Two to twenty-four percent of calories for two to nineteen-year-olds. Bad enough that actually I made a mistake with one of um, our CF patients a few years ago, a 19-year-old, and suggested that her stomach aches were due to the amount of Coke she drank. And she believed me, and she stopped, and she lost weight. Um, <laughs> so, and I wasn't too happy she lost weight. And then she says, but you told me not to drink Coke. <laughs> OK, so that's, that's a problem. So um, soft drinks and any of these energy drinks are, are, have high fructose corn syrup, a sugar that's very poorly digested um, in large amounts. Um, fructose is, is tricky in that fructose is the naturally occurring fruit sugar. So everybody sees this as good because it's what's in fruit. Um, but it takes eight apples to make a glass of apple juice. So I got eight apples worth of fructose in my glass of apple juice. If I ate eight apples and had a stomach ache, I probably wouldn't wonder why. But if I chug a glass of apple juice, I wonder why I don't feel good. And some kids don't feel good an hour or two later. Fructose is very variably digested by different people. Uh, most people can handle about 20 grams of fructose in a fructose load, which is a glass of lemonade. Um, some people can handle 50 grams of fructose and actually absorb it. Um, we're starting to think in the obesity literature that these are the people who actually gain weight more easily than other people. They're very, very good at absorbing fructose. 
the other end of the spectrum is there's a lot of people who are very bad at absorbing fructose, which is many, many, many people, and will, can absorb less than five or 10 grams at a time. If you don't absorb fructose, it's a non-absorbable sugar. It's like being lactose intolerant or taking a dose of lactulose, which is a sugar we use as a laxative. It travels through the small bowel and they unchanged, doesn't get absorbed into your colon, fermented by bacteria there and you get gas, cramps, diarrhea, and you generally don't feel well. Um, so fructose, can, fructose um, can cause a lot of problems with abdominal pain, especially if kids have a diet high in fructose. Having stomach aches, cramps, um, and feeling generally unwell can be part of that. Um, but it, we also talk about it at the other end of the spectrum. So I can have a kid come into the office drinking nothing but juice. One child's fat and the other child's too thin. And it's both for the same reason, um, the juice intake. And so understanding that's important. Um, this is probably the number one reason that we see kids with chronic abdominal pain. So when they do come in and say, it's all over, I don't know, I don't know when it happens, that's because your large bowel is all over. <laughs> and so because it's all over, you get pain all over. Um, constipation, infrequent passage of large hard stools. Um, it's very common. People, despite what they believe, should have a bowel movement every day, in one end, out the other. Um, but most kids are far too busy to do that. The mornings are far too hectic to get to the bathroom. They get the urge to go about halfway there on the school bus if, they, if they've eaten breakfast. And nine out of 10 kids will not use the school bathroom to have a bowel movement. Right? They just look at me in absolute horror that I would suggest that. Um, that was worse when I was in New Jersey where they took the doors off of all the bathroom doors. <laughs> Kids wouldn't even pee. So we had a lot of abdominal pain. But so this, this is really one of the biggest reasons that we see kids. And, and the history isn't always clear. Um, so um, treating constipation is a big part of what we do, or convincing people that they're constipated. They often, too, with the younger kids, um, we talk about not spending enough time in the bathroom. I tell kids, you know, let's say you're supposed to do 10 pieces every day, and every day you only sit there long enough to do eight. Um, so, you know, looks like you went every day, but how much is left over at the end of the week or the end of the month? And they do their little math, and go, oh, okay, I get it now. And that's how kids get backed up, is they're just not spending that time um, that they need to. Um, lactose intolerance is another common <coughs> cause of. Uh, abdominal pain. We don't see as much of it here, but if, as with an increasingly diverse population of um, African Americans and Asians, we're going to see more of this and need to be aware of it. Um, lactase, uh, the enzyme is made at the tip of the small intestinal villi. We have to be careful that any intestinal damage can cause secondary lactose intolerance. So there's times where lactose intolerance, you know, if mom and dad are lactose intolerant, the kid's nine and starting to have belly aches from drinking milk, he's probably lactose intolerant. We don't have to think a whole lot about it. If you see a one-year-old with lactose intolerance, that's not normal. Um, if you see a new onset of lactose intolerance in um, a white child whose parents aren't lactose intolerant, who's four or who's 17, think again about what could be going on and whether or not there's any underlying intestinal damage. Um, for a little while we had, do we still have that lactose-free formula? What was it called that, that was supposed to make help colicky babies? I mean, babies are not lactose intolerant unless there's, you are born with the enzyme to digest lactose. 
Lactose is the primary sugar in breast milk. So it makes no sense for a baby to be born lactose intolerant. Um, there's one small village in Finland where there's congenital <laughs> lactose intolerance. But other than that, it doesn't exist. Um, and so lactose intolerance in babies is not the real deal. There's something else going on. Usually just milk allergy, which we talked about the time before. Um, infectious enteritis, we should think about. And this doesn't have to be you know, volumes of diarrhea for uh, days on end. Um, Giardia is very, very common in New Hampshire. Um, anyone who's out in the woods, I saw two beaver dams yesterday on a walk down the river near our house. Um, beavers carry Giardia. Um, and uh, so if kids are playing in water, they're also carried by the Canada geese that are out in all this and dump in all our schoolyards. Um, so there's a lot of Giardia out there. And it can be a very low <coughs> level um, grumbling infection. Um, after maybe an acute illness or maybe not that sort of comes and goes um, in intensity. Um, so screening for Giardia is, is pretty standard. And in fact, if you do ovum parasites here, that's usually all you get is the Giardia cryptosporidium is all that will run, but it is very common here. Um, so it's worth doing. And C. diff colonization is also very common and becoming more um, uh, common. It can cause malabsorption, poor appetite, and growth without becoming that full-blown symptomatic pseudomembranous colitis that we see um, in the elderly in nursing homes. Um, and so it's important to think about. Peptic ulcer disease is the one that we, it does happen in kids, it's rare, but it's, that's the epigastric pain right here. Um, peptic, true peptic ulcer disease is associated with Helicobacter pylori. Again, um, as we become a little bit more diverse, or if you're working down in the southern part of the state with more of a refugee population or populations coming from the south, there are a lot of families where the parents are carrying Helicobacter. The, the, most, the highest instance of it in children is where there's, you're living in a house with grandparents. And if the grandparents have had ulcer disease, there's a good chance the child could pick this up. And that's where we see it. Um, gastroesophageal reflux. Um, they're pretty specific about what they're talking about as far as their chronic pain. It's, it's epigastric, it's retrosternal, it, it, it comes up there. They often will have, have a look at their teeth, ask them how their visit to the dentist was, ask if they had bad breath in the morning. Um, we see reflux probably in about 50% of asthmatics, so it's worth looking at that. I don't know if that's changed at all, Luke. But that's the rough figure we're seeing. We're it's probably not 50 percent, but yeah, we're quoting a high percentage. I think in the, the asthmatics that get sent to us um, in GI, it's probably even higher. An awful lot of them have reflux, where it's, the asthma becomes difficult to control, and it may be partly our fault. <coughs> um, celiac disease is the um, other biggie that we try to think about with chronic abdominal pain. Um, this is gluten-induced enteropathy. We talked about this bit the, la um, at the last time I was here, um, the classic disease presenting age 2 to 5. But there's a lot of insidious disease now that we're recognizing presenting in kids age 5 to 18 with just the chronic abdominal pain. So if kids have chronic abdominal pain, there is some basic things to kind of think through this list. Look for those warning signs, and then think of constipation, think of celiac disease, um, be, and think of chronic infection before we sort of say, oh, this is all, um, you know, all in your head or in your gut or whatever we want to talk about, it, whether it's stress. But think about some of these things, because celiac disease actually ca can cause some um, psychologic changes, too. So they can look 
a little bit like stressed children, and it's worth screening for this. Can be asymptomatic. There might be some iron deficiency anemia, a little bit of diarrhea, constipation, lactose intolerance. Uh, more common if you're Irish or Italian. Um, more common actually in CF or in kids with IgA deficiency. Kids who have IgA deficiency, those are your kids with recurrent ear infections, sinus infections, um, a lot of URIs. So, 200 or 1 in 200 is, is an increased incidence in that group? Um, it's probably close to their thinking more like 1 in 100 now. It's just, this is the old slide set. Seems like we're seeing more than that just in our regular yeah. New England Caucasian population. If we bring up the whole other slide set has all the new data, um, it's much more common than that now. Much, much more common. Um, but at the end of the day, my tummy still hurts, and we are missing about 30 slides. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is just open this up to, um, yeah. why don't we just open this up to questions about chronic abdominal pain and what people have to deal with in their lives in clinic. Bridget. What about the role of casein? I wonder about normal poops when the, when the child's a baby, but then when they start cow's milk, everything goes wrong. So everything, so intact cow's milk protein. Yes. So intact cow's milk protein, you know, at the year of age, sometimes denatured cow's milk protein that we're using um, in, you know, formulas and things like that, um, that goes back to more food intolerances. Some people are not as tolerant of the intact um, cow's milk proteins at a year of age when you introduce it. Sometimes can bring on significant constipation um, when that happens. So. My answer to most people with foods is if I eat this and it makes me sick is don't eat it. Um, so if you, you introduce, when you introduce cow's milk, if kids get stomach aches, that certainly could happen and I would have them back off um, for a little while and, and try and reintroduce it later. Almost everyone becomes completely tolerant of it over, you know, by the time they're four or five. But there's certainly an instance of kids who, when we introduce cow's milk in a year, have a significant issue with it, especially constipation. So I will try an email, too, if I find it. <laughs> to look under work. So anybody else have any questions about stomach aches? So I am listening if you, I'm just trying to find this down here. Go ahead, Diane. Go ahead. I'd like you to talk about um, why you're even seeing these patients, because I think primary care should be taking care of the chronic illness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I wonder, how much time do you find that you need to put into a visit? You carry more clout as a specialist, because I think a family sometimes goes just to get the, the word of the specialist. But <clears throat> could we do a comfortable amount of time and be just as effective? I believe we could. I mean, these, these can be very, very time-consuming visits for us. These are some of the longest visits that we do. Um, you know, if someone comes with straightforward, um, like a celiac disease where they've been screened and they come, that visit takes me 15 minutes to explain. We're going to endoscope you. This is what we're going to do. But sorting through this sort of um, abdominal pain can take um, a significant amount of time. And I'm not sure um, in the office that you have as much time. But that's why we try to go through, and I'll try to get the rest of the slides up, looking for those warning signs to decide which ones you have to look at, trying to address the constipation um, and some of the dietary issues by sending them to nutrition. But, uh, but how, how long is your office visit for chronic abdominal pain? 40 minutes. Time? 40 minutes. 
So I think the primary care doctor who knows the family and can use a questionnaire, which they send the patient home with and come back, could do it in 30. 30 is reasonable. We have 40 minute visits now for month, so we could. Um, but I think you would, uh, we could reduce the cost of care if we were, if you coached us all which ones shouldn't have come to you or which ones we could handle and we do a better job. Same with constipation. So let's whiz through some of this a little bit and see if we can find I have some more stuff about it. So can you, yeah, so, yeah. so as Pam whizzes through and gets some more detail for us, thanks for the plug. Mm -hmm. One of the primary objectives of the Chad Mooney Fellowship Series is to collaborate between. And that's what we wanted to. In fact, answer that question. Diane. So and, and so to put it mildly, I don't think I'm seeing everything. And I think that the primary care docs are, in fact, doing a pretty good job of this, or I would be overwhelmed with what's going on. Because here we go. So in a community-based study, as many as 17% of middle and high school students report weekly episodes of abdominal pain. And I'm clearly not seeing 17% of the population in our office. So I think the primary care doctors are doing a very good job of weeding out what needs to be. And we, and I, most of what I see, um, there's something wrong and there's something going on or else there's an extremely difficult family who's just giving you such a hard time that we don't mind helping out and being there for you. Um, among the pupils who reported abdominal pain, 21% had discomfort that was sufficiently severe to affect activity. So this is very, very prevalent. Um, so we talk about organic and functional disorders. Most of it's functional. The two categories aren't mutually exclusive. We define it by four criteria. And I can send all these out to people. Um, they have to occur over more than a period of three months um, with no known organic cause. Um, it's more accurate to use the term recurrent abdominal pain as a description um, rather than, than as a diagnosis. Um, so we did do some of this. So this is some of the stuff that I do spend time on. I, I spend a lot of time looking at diet. I spend a lot of time looking at appetite, how they're sleeping, looking at their growth curves to decide if this is significant, um, and talking about reflux. Um, taking a good history of pain, taking a good history of, of, of stooling, which no one wants to talk to me about. Um, uh, and then this is the, the one that, and we'll send this out to you. Asking the patient to record a pain diary for a week, this is probably the most helpful thing that we do. Um, is, and getting assistance from family members. And so some of the people just give up in disgust and don't come back because they don't want to do this. And then that's fine. You know, you don't have to. But if you want me to help you, this is what I ask them to do. The time, the, time, the location, the severity, um, things that they thought might have triggered it, how long it lasted, what they took, how it helped. And this sometimes becomes extremely obvious once you sit down with this diary exactly what's going on. Um, the child who has a soda every day at lunch and has pain at 3 o'clock, like you can often just peg it right out exactly what's going on. Um, the psychosocial history is huge. And this, again, is where the primary care doctors have a leg up on us. They've known these families for quite a while. And this is an important part of uh, the evaluation. Um, the child's abdominal pain may very well be reinforced by the parental attention um, and being allowed to stay home from school. Um, and so in our minds, um, if you call and you've had diarrhea and vomiting and abdominal pain, you haven't missed a single day of school, you better get right in here to the office because there's something wrong. 
and you might have IBD or things like that. And if you've missed 60 days of school this year, there's probably not a whole lot going on. <laughs> um, so I, we have almost none of our patients with a real deal inflammatory bowel disease who miss school. They really don't. They will get there no matter what. They, and they're upset with us when we try to schedule um, things that get in the way of their exams or them getting stuff done or missing their team's game or something like that. So it's, it's a big part. Physical is important, growth parameters. Um, I do a lot of observation of feeding and eating, and that's part of the 40 minutes. Um, and we'll actually keep them for longer. Um, with younger babies who are having pain, watching them eat. Um, even with older kids um, having them eat, we did have um, one girl, and I don't know if Lou you remember, who came into CF clinic complaining that every time she ate, she got super bloated and it was really painful. And um, she was quite thin. And so we sent her, I said, well, go eat and let's see what happens since this happens every time you eat. And so she went down to Sparrow. <laughs> she had, I don't know how many pieces of pizza and some lasagna and a huge meal and came back and she was bloated. But when I showed her how much food she ate versus what had happened in inches in her stomach, she's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes people don't sort of realize what they're doing to themselves. Um, looking in their mouth, doing the cardiorespiratory exam, every year I get do get a case of uh, cardiomyopathy that lands in our office. Um, and doing the whole exam, including the perianal and, and uh, rectal exam. Um, the perianal exam is important. Um, you, you do find things that you don't expect. And no one wants to have it done, and everybody objects. And, and I think we back off too easily. Um, and all too often, that's the one thing I haven't seen done by the primary care when I do see them in the office. Um, I don't know if people have heard me speak about constipation, but my first week um, as an independent gastroenterologist after fellowship when I was working in New Jersey, I had a 16-year-old come to me with chronic abdominal pain and constipation. And I wanted to do a rectal exam. She didn't want to have it done. Her mother didn't want me to do it. I wanted to look. And she actually did not have an anus. And she had been stooling through her vagina her whole life. But of course, this was my first week out. I just thought I couldn't find the anus. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, tell me that's not happening to me. I can't do this. Looking. I looked again, and I'm like, really? Um, just nightmares that I really was not cut out to do this. <laughs> but I couldn't find the anus. Um, so, but real story. And this is where people are trying not to let you look. Um, I had another young girl um, from an Orthodox community who came in, with, brought in by her mother with chronic abdominal pain, really didn't want me to examine her, <laughs> was really upset about it. Um, but her mother saying, you have to, you have to, she has all this pain. Um, I did lift up her shirt, she pierced her belly button, and then everything erupted because <laughs> that was why she had a stomach ache. Not, it wasn't infected or anything, it was just because she didn't want her mother to know that she had pierced her belly button and was doing all kinds of other things that she wasn't supposed to be doing. Um, and I think she got to tell us all in a safer environment with her mother supervised, because we had to bring in other people and calm everybody down, what was going on in her life. So finishing that exam when they don't want to is important. We talked about the um, alarm systems, uh, symptoms, and these are the important ones. If you see these, feel free to send them our way. 
Um, these you distinguish are, between doing an anal ex, uh, exam and a perianal exam in your slide? So you don't have to do the whole rectal All right. <laughs> if they're totally off the wall about it. Um, but unless they're, you know, a youngster, a very young baby with constipation, I would suggest doing the rectal exam to make sure everything's okay. But in an older child, a perianal exam is quite adequate to, to look. Look for fissures, look for hemorrhoids, look and see it's in the right place. It's there. Um, that's that sort of thing. You can get, I, I, we found kids with STDs. There's just all kinds of stuff going on when you look down there. Um, but I don't always do a, a, a rectal unless I have a reason. And if, you, you know, if you're telling me there's blood in your stool and I've got stool cards with blood on them, I don't need to stick my finger and get some blood and stick it on a card. I mean, um, so no, and if I know I'm going to do a colonoscopy, then I'm not going to, why put them through a rectal exam? I, I'll, when they're asleep, I'll do a rectal to feel around and I'll find the polyp or I'll find whatever it is. Um, so again, it goes to that thing of any test, only do a test you're going to do something about the result of or you're not going to do something differently. And if I've already decided I'm going to do a colonoscopy, I'm not going to put them through a rectal. Especially if they've got active Crohn's and it's painful, that's just mean. Um, the psych, uh, psychophysiologic pain. Um, so functional abdominal pain, the diagnosis of functional abdominal pain can really be made without additional testing. If there's no alarm findings, you have a normal physical, and you have a stool sample negative for alcohol blood. In some cases, we can do limited testing, CBC, um, a sed rate in a urine to facilitate acceptance of the diagnosis of functional abdominal pain. Um, when such testing is performed, it may be helpful to set the expectations for normal results. So say, we'll do this, but I think it's going to be normal. Um, extensive evaluation to exclude organic disease should be avoided. The yield is very low. The costs are very high. And it really delays getting the appropriate management in place. And then it even just heightens the concerns about this undiagnosed organic disease. If, if when, once people start getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of bills, they're convinced you think there was something wrong or you wouldn't have put them through this. Um, again, if you put pain, kids through painful tests and difficult tests, then you must think there's something wrong. And so they're convinced too and they want you to keep going. So you need to be able to just stop at some point where if you've got no alarm findings, a normal physical exam, um, no blood in their stool, a normal CBC, you're really all done. Um, and um, you know, I do talk on the last bit about thinking about things like I will throw in a celiac screen. Um, if there is some diarrhea, doing some simple stool samples is reasonable, um, like Giardia, Crypto, and, and C. diff. But uh, other than that, not everything else unless you traveled to Africa. Um, we went through the common organic causes, the lactose intolerance, infectious enteritis. So some of my old slides are here. Um, so we classify functional abdominal pain. Um, in, this is the Rome criteria, functional dyspepsia, IBS, the functional old RAP, migraines, and functional constipation. Um, functional gastrointestinal pain, it's real pain. So the, the one thing to get here is it's not that these kids aren't feeling pain. The pain is real. It's just that it's not because you've got something inflammatory in your gut going on. And so 
it's not, oh, this isn't an important goal, off you go. The pain is real. It's causing them problems. They really did miss 60 days of school. Um, it's a big interplay between regulatory factors in the enteric and central nervous system, maybe associated with what we call visceral hyperalgesia or a reduced uh, threshold for pain. Um, abnormal pain referral after rectal distension or impaired gastric relaxation response to meals. So these kids, their, their gut responses aren't normal. When they, um, or people have an abnormal, this, their sensation is heightened. What they feel is normal. So they say, every time I need to go to the bathroom, it hurts, I have a cramp. I'm like, well, how do you know you have to go to the bathroom? Well, that's how I know I have to go to the bathroom, but somehow they perceive this as abnormal and we have to kind of reroute that perception a little bit. How do I know I ate too much? Well, I get bloated and I don't feel good, but I'm not ill and trying to sort of talk about these things um, is very important. But some people really seem to have a, a decreased threshold for pain. There was a huge study done, it must be about 10 years ago now, of um, IBS in adult females. And they had um, a control, it was over 1,000 women um, who were asked to keep diaries of their pain and what they ate, the kind of diaries that we did. <laughs> And between the control group and the group of patients with IBS, there was actually no difference in what they ate, the pain or pain that they felt. There was just whether or not people thought that was abnormal and whether or not they thought they should go to the doctor about it. So there are people who come who feel that if I have pain for 10 or 15 minutes before I need to go and have a bowel movement, that's abnormal and come to talk to you about it. Or when I eat too much or when I eat dinner, I feel bloated and and feel that that's abnormal and, and talk to you about it and, and, other, and other people that don't, or people who eat at McDonald's and think they shouldn't feel pain. Um, so that, that was interesting. Um, so dyspepsia is pain or discomfort in the epigastric region, early sighty, bloating, nausea, retching, or vomiting. Um, IBS is chronic abdominal pain and altered bowel habits, diarrhea, the constipation, in the absence of any alarm findings, it is a diagnosis. Um, but again, trying to let people know that this is not a serious illness that we need to keep investigating is very important. Um, so compared with healthy volunteers, children with IBS have a lower rectal pain threshold um, and the different rectal contraction to re uh, response to meals. Compared with controls <laughs> with dyspepsia, have abnormal pain referral after rectal distension. And adolescents with IBS have much higher anxiety and depression scores than those who don't have symptoms. So this is a really a gut nervous system interplay that we need to deal with. The one that we, it's a little bit different, is abdominal migraine. Abdominal migraine is recurrent episodes of abdominal pain for about 12 months poorly localized um, with, that may include anorexia, nausea, vomiting, or pallor, and a family history of migraine is common. These are young kids who often then will develop migraine headaches as they get older, but it's quite cyclic. It's not the kid with pain every day, it's episodic things where they have this pain for two or three days and they're pale and they don't look well and they might throw up. That's the abdominal migraine. With a family history of migraines, that's what suggested the treatments are very similar, and they do well with things like ciproheptadine as treatment, periactin, which is what we use it for migraines in young children. 
Um, this is the one that we had talked about, functional abdominal pain syndrome and functional constipation. Um, we talked about constipation. We talked about diet. We talked about those teens and all their. So then we talked about, we didn't talk about FODMAPs, and this is the hot new topic. Um, so when we talk about all of this stuff with diet and things that are upsetting people's stomachs, and when we go back to the IBS, and we go back to the functional dyspepsia, and people feeling bloated, um, and people having increased um, sensation, there's a suggestion now in the literature over the last couple of years that, that a lot of this has to do with what we call FODMAPs in our diet. And this, the most common FODMAP is fructose. Remember we talked about that at the beginning and how different people react to fructose differently. So some people are super duper fructose absorbers and can do a great job of absorbing fructose and gain weight from it. And other people can't absorb it at all. So there's actually a group of foods called FODMAPs. So uh, fermentable oligodisaccharides, monosaccharides, um, oligosaccharides, and polyols. Um, and they all work like that high fructose corn syrup. And they their ingestion increases delivery of fermentable substrate and water to distal small intestine and colon, which can induce luminal distension and induction of functional gut syndrome. And so we're they're starting to think that over about half of IBS and dyspepsia may in fact respond nicely to uh, low FODMAP diets. The restriction of their intake globally does reduce functional gut syndrome uh, symptoms. That's durable and is reversed by reintroduction. So they've now done some uh, very large studies um, on this that have shown significant effect by reducing FODMAPs. And I would say that this is the one thing that has changed my practice in the last two years and actually gotten adolescent females out the door. <laughs> um, and coming back and saying, thank you, it helped. Um, so whereas all of the stuff I was showing you before and all those criteria for IBS and all of the functional dyspepsia, we really felt was people sort of feeling things more than they should, they may have been feeling more gas than everybody else. Um, relating to these FODMAPs. So learning about the um, FODMAP diet um, is very, very useful, and I can send that out to anybody who'd like. The diet actually has a very high compliance rate because um, unlike other things, people actually do feel better when they do it. Um, so, And they can reintroduce foods. And, and I say to people, you don't have to take all of these foods out of your diet, but learn which ones might be causing you problems. Learn that you shouldn't eat a whole meal all from all of FODMAPs, like a bagel, cream cheese, and a and apple juice. All, those are all FODMAPs, and those are all a very typical lunch for kids at school who then have pain at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So over and over, we'll look at diets of teens, and I get those diet records, and almost the entire breakfast and lunch are FODMAP foods. Um, and so they have pain by the end of the day, and that makes sense. So this has probably changed my life and might help all of you. Um, the low FODMAP diet is really ineffective, and the evidence base is now sufficiently strong to recommend its widespread application. So this is evidence-based medicine. Um, it's not a fad anymore. It was for a little while. Um, but FODMAP is, is now evidence-based medicine. Um, so the FODMAP, just to recap, are fructose, lactose, fructans, including wheat, um, which is why a lot of people feel better on a gluten-free diet. Um, galactans, the beans that we all knew about, polyols, the sweeteners, include, uh, containing sorbitol. Probably the number one you should put up there is sugar-free gum. 
Sugar-free gum contains sorbitol, and kids eat packs of this stuff. Um, and that will give them gas. And so sugar-free gum is a FODMAP. But even with all of these, they're still coming back. <laughs> there are some you will not make happy, and their tummy will still hurt. But we try our very, very best. But I would say, going back, the, the, the biggest things that have changed things for me are really concentrating on the constipation and concentrating on the FODMAPs. Hi, Pam. I'm Kathy Shepkin. I'm one of the primary care docs. Thank you for the talk. It's not like Diane, I feel like sometimes this is half of my day as well. Yeah. Um, two questions. One, you mentioned that 5 to 10% of the population doesn't digest fructose well. Mm -hmm. Is there an ethnic distribution like there is for lactose no. intolerance? No, there's not. Okay. We, they haven't identified that. And it's actually more than 5 to 10%. The, somewhere around half of the population doesn't digest fructose very well. Um, it's unusual to digest it well. It's 5% of people, or 5 to 10, that can take more than 50 grams. Most people don't absorb it well. And, and we're my, getting more and more and more with our diets. My second question is that I have a lot of families that I counsel all the way through this, and they said, yes, yes, yes. Do you have a complementary or alternative medicine option for me? Is it probiotics? Is it peppermint oil? Um, anything else that you use um, that helps these kids with recurrent or chronic abdominal pain? So sending them off on the diet helps a lot mm -hmm. with the whole complementary food. And we use some probiotics, and I can I can send you that. Their probiotics are like antibiotics. One antibiotic does not fit all, and one probiotic does not fit all. Um, so we do have a, sh a sheet that I can send out through Eleni of which probiotics are indicated for which specific things, constipation versus diarrhea. Align is the one that's most recommended for irritable bowel. A Floristore if you have diarrhea. Actually, uh, similar question. Um, yeah. I was actually asked about probiotics. Yeah. Thank you, Kathy. The other thing that I've heard a lot, I'm practicing up in South Wales one day a week now, and their co-op sells kombucha. And it's this black tea elixir of health. Fermented. Fermented, yes. Have you heard anything? But I'd love to see the label. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, I, so with some of the complementary therapies, I, I do try to get the labels of things that people are using um, to try and make sure this isn't something harmful or that would react with something. But if you can actually grow yourself, but it, your mother. Yeah, but you can yeah. grow Dijoxin too. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you know, this whole natural thing. So I, I try to find out what it is and do a little research on it. Um, but if it seems like it's not harmful and you feel better, go for it. Shalene yeah, uh, isn't here, so I feel like I should. <laughs> but, um, you know, one thing that, ironically, the FODMAP, which you say is real and mm -hmm. it helps, it, just a quick glance at that list, it seems like there are, it would be confusing to the average individual because there are a lot of foods on there that are everybody else is pushing as, right. as good for you. So so we give people a much more detailed list than this and we have a whole pictogram thing of it. There are a lot of fruits and vegetables that are not FODMAP. So it, it's just, there's specific fruits and vegetables that are FODMAPs, but there are an awful lot that aren't. There are a lot you can eat that aren't. Um, so watermelon is a FODMAP. And now I understand why I always feel sick in the summer when I eat a lot of watermelon. 
but there's there's lots of fruits and vegetables in art, and pa parents haven't had a problem with it. We have some very detailed handouts with pictograms of what you can eat and what you can't. And I say to people, they don't unless they're really sick, they don't have to be that strict. It's more read this and try to pay attention to not eating the whole meal from we have it split into the bottom and the top half of the page, the top half being good foods, the bottom half being the bad ones. Try not to pick your whole meal from the bottom half or you're going to not feel well. Um, and, and people seem to understand that and have done very, very well with it. But there are a lot of <coughs> vegetables you can eat that are not FODMAPs. Does chronic appendicitis exist as a disease? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've seen pathology reports that talk about, you know, scarring and everything when the appendix is taken out. And okay. I don't know. I, I, it's not something I've ever seen. It's not something you typically treat. It's not something we treat. It's not something I know what to do with. Um, I think if you have a fecalis stuck in your appendix, you could have chronic appendiceal pain, and you could have times where it's obstructed or not obstructed. Um, and inevitably, within I think it's within two years, 70% of those come to appendectomy. So that may be what we think of as chronic appendicitis, is someone with a fecal lift that's kind of popping in and out um, and causing them discomfort. So, Susie, I'll be Thank you. Pam, I'm Susie Whitcomb, one of the triage nurses. And this is for Kathy Drew. As triage nurses, would it be helpful for just a week to do the pain and diet? Mm -hmm. And is a week long enough? Yeah. Okay. You're suggesting when you take the call before they come in? Yeah. The you know, before they come in for the visit, if they've done a diary of what I ate, what my pain was like when I went to the bathroom, it's hugely helpful. And the number of times you can just even glance at it and see exactly what's wrong is amazing. That's a great idea. So that would really help. That's a great idea for team, team care. Yeah. Uh, you're going to sneak in one last one? Okay. You are first. You can oh, be sorry. In the practice I was in in mid-70s, there was a written questionnaire for chronic headaches and chronic uh, stomach aches. And it was enormously helpful. And it had a lot of what you want short of a diary. Right. Do you have a structured questionnaire for either of these? I don't. But I mean, so I, I might have it in my files. I think it would. That would be interesting to see. I mean, I try to do a kind of it top to bottom. So yeah, it is. The more information that we can get ahead of time. So before y'all run away, have a great summer, but don't schedule all your grand round slots. We are going to continue some of our imagining of chat, our imagine chat process during this time slot in July and August, and those. Like Dr. Boyle, will have a green lanyard this summer. We'll have been to the summit on Saturday and can tell you why it's worth your while to join us in the summer. So have a great uh, summer, everyone.